0: Acts of terror. Crimes against the public. To combat it, I've got special men. Experts from the army, the police, from every service. These are The Professionals. Clemens Clemens' The Professionals was an all-action series from Avengers Mark I Productions, airing on the ITV network in between 30th of December 1977 and the 6th of February 1982. It followed the investigations of CI5, the organisation mentioned in the opening quote. Despite being a large organisation, most of CI5's cases were handled by two men, Ray Doyle, played by Martin Shaw, and Anthony Andrews as William Andrew Bodey. The casting would prove difficult from the get-go, and a constant headache for Clemens. Shaw was second choice for Doyle, with original choice John Finch initially accepting, and then backing out at the very last minute. Andrews and Shaw, despite getting along magnificently with each other, weren't generating the right kind of on-screen chemistry, and three days after filming commenced on the 13th of June 1977, Andrews was dropped. Casting around for a replacement, Clemens remembered a young actor named Lewis Collins who had played opposite Shaw in Obsession, a recently filmed episode of The New Avengers. Shaw and Collins hadn't got on. At all. And as such had that kind of abrasive on-screen spikiness Clemens was looking for. Collins, by coincidence, had booked a small role in the first Professionals episode, Old Dog with New Tricks, and was promptly upgraded to series co-lead. Shaw, who loathed the show, his parts, the scripts, in fact, everything about the gig, later complained, putting us together was fine for one episode. For four years, was madness. Although he and Collins did later put aside their differences long enough to get the work done. When asked why he'd even taken the job, Shaw replied, there was nothing else around at the time. Critics agreed with Shaw, with the show frequently singled out as violent, meat-headed and stupid. The casting in The Professionals was always a bit odd. Lewis Collins at least looked like he could handle himself in a bar fight. Martin Shaw always looked like a good gust of wind would blow him over. Cast as CI5's big boss and founder, George Cowley, was Gordon Jackson. Jackson accepted the role largely because he'd just come off four years as Hudson on Upstairs Downstairs, a kind of precursor to Downton Abbey, and was looking forward to a change of image. Jackson was the easiest to get along with, according to Clemens. He knew his line, showed up on time, did his job without complaint and went home. After Shaw whined about constantly reusing the same locations, Jackson said... I have no truck with Martin's complaints. Location filming is expensive, so of course, if a location has worked out before, why not use it again? And The Professionals was a very location intensive shoot. The Professionals isn't so much a show that they don't make anymore, but one that they can't make anymore. The Professionals positively oozes what would today be called toxic masculinity, with Bodie and Doyle really nothing more than fascist thugs working for an organisation that answers to no one. Personally, I don't find Bodie and Dahl to be toxic. I just think they're a bit thick. Here's Cowley describing CI5 in his own words. CI5.
1: Criminal Intelligence. The Action Squad. The Big A. V. Squad. All right. so we may have half a dozen names, but only one job. To see that no one messes on our doorstep. And that means preventive detection, preventive action—to detect, determine, prevent, and/or take suitable action and/or actions against those transgressors against the law outside the norm of criminal activity—to contain and render ineffective such by whatever means necessary. That's our official brief. By any means necessary. That's our loophole. Now I'll tell you my interpretation. I'll tell you what it's really going to be like. You'll be paired off, and from then on you're the to kids. The slightest whiff of anything, and you move in. Shake him down, crush him before they even start to grow like an alley fight. And that's what this is, an alley fight. So kick him and the ghoulies first. Do unto others now what they're still thinking about. Oh, they'll be squeals. And once in a while you'll turn a law-abiding citizen into an authority-hating anarchist. They'll be squeals and letters to MPs. But that's the price they have and we have to pay to keep this island clean and smelling, even if ever so fatally, of roses and lavender. But you make a mistake like that and I'll back you to the hills. But make the other kind of mistake. The kind that ends up with innocent people bleeding all over the high street. And the only backing you get is with my boot and right out of this organisation.
0: on the face of it. Organisations like this are needed. Not everything can be by the book. But Bodie and Doyle often don't seem to have even read the book. Bodie's reactions to every situation is to hit it or shoot it. And Bodie's the classy one. He dresses well. Well, by 1977 standards anyway. He's classically educated and army trained. A former mercenary, Bodie follows orders. Largely because he doesn't seem to have the intelligence to think his way out of the front door every morning. Doyle, by contrast, is a former drug enforcement copper. He's quicker to anger, often needing restraining by Bodie, but he's also smarter and more inclined to, at least occasionally, listen to what someone has to say before he punches them. When an innocent man is killed in the episode Killer with a Long Arm, Doyle castigates an officer who refers to the dead man as a nobody. By contrast, Bodie would make sick jokes when confronted with death, a situation that reaches its nadir in close quarters, when Bodhi makes a cringe-inducing gag about this simply being round one after terrorists callously gun down a priest. The series opens with a magnificently campy opening title sequence. The kids, our heroes, are dropped off by Dad, Cowley, at the ballpark and told to go off and play. It's actually an assault course where they're timed undertaking macho activities such as punching cardboard cutouts and throwing knives in a manly way. It's hysterical, but it looks like an awful lot of fun. I haven't seen anything this simultaneously gay while striving to be masculine since I rewatched John Carpenter's Vampires. The subsequent title sequence for series 2 through 5 are much better, concentrating on the action that the series was rightly famous for. A Ford Cortina crashes through glass, Doyle legs it through London, Bodie pits things, and Cowley gets out of cars and walks down the steps of important looking buildings. Less campy, but more appropriate for the series. As usual, I will be going through the first season with a fine tooth comb and then just touching upon later episodes. Long shot is easily the dodgiest of these early shows. Roger Lloyd-Pack is an Eastern terrorist with a bowl cut and Elvis shades, hunting and killing on the streets of London. His alleged target, UFO's Ed Bishop, is a smokescreen for his real target, Cowley. But Lloyd-Pack is Trigger from Only Fools and Horses. The dumb accent, terrible clothing choices and awfully campy shades can't hide that this is Trigger from... Only Fools and Horses, and any tension dissipates faster than a pint in a Scottish bar due to the laughable thought of Trigger from Only Fools and Horses being a terrorist sniper. The atrocious looping of the actors caused by faulty sound equipment on set doesn't help either. It looks like badly dubbed porn. It's saved immeasurably by a chilling twist ending in which Cowley callously arranges Paul Trigger's death after the law once again proves ineffective. This was a common theme in The Professionals, and arguably led to the creation of CI5 in the first place. Other than that misstep, The professional comes out of the gate running. Old Dogs with New Tricks is a good opening episode. Eschewing the pilot premise, the first episode is just another case for Bodie and Doyle, and other than Cowley's exposition to the new recruits quoted above, it's a pretty standard episode, which is presumably why ITV didn't bother showing it first. Pamela Stevenson guest stars as a gorgeous nurse and pretty much sets the template for women in the show, either a secretary, a nurse, a girlfriend or a prostitute. Women don't get much of a look-in in The Professionals, which, given Bodie’s rampant sexism, is probably a good thing. There's a nice line in humour, normally from Doyle at Bodie's expense, and it's suitably action-packed and exciting. Doyle would continue to take the piss out of his partner at regular intervals. Where the Jungle Ends delves into Bodie's past and features a gang of A-Team-like mercenaries landing on British soil and performing violent bank raids as an audition for a London ganglord. Notable for featuring future Poirot David Suchet and Brit TV regular Geoffrey Palmer, there is again a nice vein of dark humour in this one, especially Doyle's discomfort at being hit on by a 17-year-old schoolgirl. Collins is still rough around the edges here and overacts terribly, but there's some nice character work. Bodie takes his dressing down from Cowley like a soldier, tends to obey orders without question, in comparison to Doyle who always questions and frequently stands up to Cowley, even though he clearly respects him. It frequently seems, during the series, Cowley has more time for Doyle than Bodie. He treats Bodie as an errant schoolboy who needs whipping into line. He gives Doyle a lot more latitude. Killer with a long arm never gets past its dumb conceit. A high-class sniper for hire tries out a new weapon that can hit its target from over two miles away by killing random civilians, which makes not a lick of sense. It also shows Doyle at he's most thuggish. Heroes, by contrast, is a lot of fun, largely due to the presence of another CI5 member, Tommy, who is basically the Punisher. His family were killed by terrorists and ever since he's a shoot-first, don't-bother-with-questions kind of guy and he's inordinately entertaining. Even Bodie and Doyle think he's unhinged. He's clearly loving being paid to kill terrorists. Sadly, he's a CI5 agent who isn't Bodie or Doyle so his days are numbered. General Reichen himself, Bruce Boer, shows up as a loudmouthed American politician. Is there any other kind? Private Madness, Public Danger, the first episode screened by ITV stars lightweight comedy actor Keith Barron as a chemist who, disturbed at the military application of his work, takes to poisoning Londoners to demonstrate his point. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a nice action-packed episode. The female factor was an early delight. A high-class call girl and former CI of Doyle when he was a copper is found dead in the River Thames, and an angry Doyle investigates, uncovering an elaborate tale of Russian interference in UK politics and underage trafficking. It's well acted by all concerned, the plot takes some nice detours, and it's nice to see a more curring side to Doyle rather than the brutal thug of other episodes. Great guest performances from Pamela Salem as the high-class hooker, Anthony Steele as the upper-class high-camp pimp, Simon Culver, and yes, that is Bond bad guy Walter Gotell as the evil mastermind behind the whole scheme. Everest was also conquered Is almost progressive. Investigating a decades-old cold case that has come back to prominence leads Bodie and Doyle to uncover a case of bribery and corruption, leading to the murder of a key witness. Key to this case is a lesbian copper, and Bodie and Doyle are actually remarkably respectful of her lifestyle choices and understanding how a lesbian copper in the 50s she would have been open to blackmail and intimidation. Former Robin Hood Richard Green is the bad guy. Close Quarters is terrible, showcasing all of the series' bad points in one nasty and overly violent package. Bodie is on forced leave after an injury, He's punting down the river with his girlfriend, UFO's devastatingly classy and beautiful Gabrielle Drake, when he spots a terrorist wanted by CI5. The terrorist neither knows nor sees Bodie, so had Bodie any brains at all, he'd have got to a phone box, called Cowley, reported it, and got back to enjoying his day off. Sadly, Bodie is an idiot and decides to tackle the terrorist himself, leading to the death of a priest, the destruction of his relationship with Drake, who rightly dumps his ass after seeing what a callous, brutal thug he is, and the deaths of all the terrorists, including future, past Doctor Who, David Bradley. For good measure, Bodie even indulges in some girlfriend battery. It's all wrapped up with a supremely embarrassing and ill-judged comedy ending, it's fun to watch, just to see how lousy Bodie is without Cowley's orders and Doyle's influence, but it's hard to get behind a hero who's a stupid, pig-headed moron, and whose witty one-liners aren't black humour like Bond, but crass and misplaced. This episode could have been an interesting character study, with Bodie being forced to confront his own personality and shortcomings, but The Professionals isn't that kind of show. Klansman is an uncompromising and brutal look at racism, so much so that it was pulled from its ur date in 1978, and to this date has never been screened by ITV. It has aired on cable stations Granada Plus and Super Channel, both now sadly defunct, and has been released on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. The genesis of the episode: How did a show that had no chance of ever making it to screen even get made? Is fascinating. The very comprehensive professionals website, www.mark-one.co.uk professionals, states that all episode scripts were sent to London Weekend Television for vetting. At this stage, they could request changes to the scripts if they felt these were necessary. Amazingly, Klansman was given the okay, apparently with no change requests at all. So Mark One naturally went on to actually film it. It was only after filming had completed and Mark I had wrapped up production on the first season that LWT suddenly decided that the episode was unacceptable. Brian Clements has said that had LWT notified him in time, he would have happily adjusted the script to appease them. So either someone was asleep at the wheel or the scripts weren't being vetted at all. Despite being banned here, Klansman was sold overseas, and with it finally available on streaming, I can watch it and finally see what all the fuss is about. It's very much a game of two halves. On the one hand, the actual portrayal of racism is sickening, which is surely the point. The language is very offensive, containing derogatory slurs for ethnic minorities that I've never even heard of, which is again a good thing, because it means they've fallen out of use. On the other hand, Lewis Collins hates this show for revealing Bodie to be a hateful racist. Now, Bodie is a lot of things. He's sexist, he's smug, he's painfully unfunny and a little bit thick. But his racial attitudes here are such that we may never like him again. Detrimental to a series lead. However, his ultimate redemption is also highly unlikely. After being stabbed, Bodie is operated on by a black doctor and nurse, and this changes his attitude overnight. After a terrifyingly realistic setup, this is woefully simplistic. The script at least has the decency to have both Cowley and Doyle condemn Bodie for his words. Doyle fares much better. He goes undercover in the white supremacist group, always has the multiracial couple who are the target for the hate campaign in his mind and his anger at the empire society is justified and real. This isn't the England Ray Doyle represents. The racial tensions and imagery though are somewhat at odds with the proceedings. The bad guys burn crosses on the couple's lawn and wear white gowns and pointy hats, but this isn't a part of British culture. The symbols of the Ku Klux Klan aren't redolent of any racist group in this country, and as such it ends up not being as shocking as simply seeing a man in a suit mouth racial epithets. The episode is also seriously undercut by the ending, where we learn that it's a black man behind the whole thing. He's trying to run the poor black tenants out of those slum houses to sell the land for redevelopment. So the enemy isn't racism, after all. It's capitalism. Well, that's okay, then. The episode is sickening and thought-provoking. It's also silly and a bit dumb. It can be all of the above, As a piece of TV, it's well-made, well-paced and challenging. It doesn't glorify racism, nor condone it. And none of the black characters are stereotyped in the way that the contemporary comedy series, Mind Your Language, was. That was an insulting and demeaning show, where ethnic stereotypes were offered up for cheap laughs. Klansman manages to go too far, and not far enough, simultaneously. Which is a neat trick. I can see and understand why ITV pulled the episode, although I still don't understand why to this day it hasn't been given a proper erring. The Professionals is now being rerun in the afternoons on ITV4, and they are edited savagely to fit that time slot. This episode is thematically too difficult to even edit in such a way as to be appropriate for 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Look After Annie is a nothing episode, making very little sense. CR5 are to protect a Christian evangelist who, despite being British, is making it big in the USA. A visit back to England sees her the target of an assassination for... reasons I never quite understood. Other than some interesting background for Cowley and a few funny scenes between Bodie and Doyle, this is an almost entirely forgettable instalment, when even Space 1999's Clifton James and Rocky Horror's Patricia Quinn... Burley registering. Stakeout is another nothing episode. The professionals had fallen further and further behind on the schedule due to the expensive location filming and stunt work. So this money-saving episode, a bottle show set completely in a bowling alley, was supposed to save some time. Alas, the background noise of the location affected production even more than a standard show – Pamela Stevenson shows up again, this time in a more substantial role, but there's a lot of padding as Bodie and Doyle bowl for an hour whilst trying to figure out who is planning to drop an A-bomb in the middle of London. Lewis Collins and Martin Shaw's on-screen chemistry is at its height, though, and it's always amazing to me that two people who don't get on at all well off-camera can just click so well on screen. See also Nathan Fillion and Stana Katick, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis, and James Bolam and Rodney Bewes. The final first series episode to be filmed over Christmas and New Year 1977-1978 was When the Heat Cools Off. Future Doctor Who companion Lala Ward, looking incredibly young and beautiful, takes Doyle to task for chucking her gangster father in jail six years earlier for a crime he allegedly didn't commit. It's a remarkably plot-heavy story for this series, with little action and some proper detective work by Doyle, and it all culminates in a neat ending. The series debuted on ITV in the waning days of 1977, and was an immediate smash hit, with record-breaking viewing figures and solid overseas sales, which immediately made The Professionals a solid moneymaker for the production team. It was immediately picked up for a further 13 episodes, much to Martin Shaw's chagrin. I think its success is down to the no-nonsense approach taken by CI5, the very thing that would see it ran out of town in today's television environment. CI5 may be slightly immoral, slightly fascist and overly tolerant of bully-boy tactics, but they get the job done. And in their heart of hearts, I sometimes think the public want an organisation like that. Think about it. When have you heard of a news report of a particular heinous crime, a child murder or child trafficking or a brutal police beating or what have you, and really been angry about it? In that dark moment, you probably, even if only for a second, thought that these people should be tossed in jail and the key thrown away, or worse, executed. Well, that's what CI5 did. They caught scum, be they criminals, gangsters, terrorists or even corrupt politicians, They did it with no mercy, no remorse. It's pure wish-fulfillment, escapist hokum. But with everything being so serious nowadays, its lightness of touch is appreciated. We genuinely don't make stuff like this anymore. The criticisms of the series are valid. Bodie and Doyle are, for the most part, meat-headed and dumb. The violence is over-the-top and often sadistic. The plot's too often silly. Women are secretaries or girlfriends. In these first 13 episodes, we saw Bodie and Doyle out with a number of women, very few of which had any lines. Only Gabrielle Drake was given a personality, and she was horrified by who Bodie was when she saw the real him. Granted, she was far too classy for him anyway. Only Cowley's secretary was a recurring character, and she was relegated to making tea and passing Cowley some files. And yet, Women loved this series and loved dumb-as-a-brick Lewis Collins, and in many cases still do. The fan base for the professionals nowadays is still a 50-50 split. The producers of Life on Mars once said that the more sexist they made Gene Hunt, the more women loved him. And the same obviously applies here. Make of that what you will. Brian Clemens was only too aware of what the press and the critics were saying about the show, even as it was voted favourite TV show in the Viewers' Choice Awards right up to its demise in 1982. The show continues in pretty much the same vein throughout, but in The Rack, CI5 finds itself on trial after Doyle accidentally kills a man in their custody. This episode sees the show tackle unauthorised and brutal use of force, CI5's remit that they aren't really answerable to anyone, and the fact that they frequently bulldoze in, do whatever they need to do and walk away with no repercussions. Cowley is forced to answer for CI5's bully-boy tactics, and his argument isn't entirely convincing that the ends justify the means, and that as long as there are so-called respectable men working above the law, CI5 will be needed to bring these people down. CI5 still does hold a small amount of appeal, though. We all know of elected officials who are corrupt as they come, politicians in somebody's pocket, just as we all know businessmen who skirt the law with regards to taxes and treatment of employees, and we all know these people will never be brought to justice. Cowley doesn't quite prove CI5's innocence, but isn't it closed down either? The Rack is also interesting for the Battle of the Almost Bonds, with Lewis Collins going face-to-face with another Bond that never was, Michael Billington, better known as UFO's Paul Foster. An actual Bond, Pierce Brosnan will have a bit part in series Four Blood Sports, and Bond director Martin Campbell will direct a number of episodes of The Professionals. In the public interest is another story inspired by the reaction to the show. Tales reach Cowley's ears of a police district that is taking its remit to clean up the streets too literally with the harassment of a gay youth club, arresting people before they've done anything and achieving their goal of a law-abiding city but at the cost of it being a police state. The parallels between CI5's remit, by whatever means necessary, and the constabulary as portrayed here is ladled on pretty thick, as Clemens attempts to show us why CI5 is different. Again, he doesn't entirely succeed. It's implied it's only because Cowley is a moral man that CI5 works at all. But there isn't really enough evidence to throw the book at the police that they're investigating. And CI5's treatment of people isn't that different. Still, at least it asks questions about how far we should be willing to go to curb crime, how much freedom should the police have, and there's even some gay rights thrown in here. Oddly, former super-racist and sexist pig Bodie has no problems with gay people. Maybe he is redeemable. The Purging of CI5 is a little cracker, a nice taut thriller about the assassination of CI5's own agents. Rogue shows how devious Cowley can be, and Servant of Two Masters sees Bodie and Doyle forced to investigate Cowley after he's accused of selling a deadly nerve gas to the other side. The madness of Mickey Hamilton is also a standout, in that the villain, pre-Star Wars Ian McDermott, is presented as a sympathetic figure, mourning the deaths of his daughter and wife and taking his frustrations out on the NHS. Some nice commentary... Your wife and child died because there aren't enough doctors, Doyle tells him at one point. And this story shows the difference between the two men. Bodie would have just beaten poor Mickey up. Doyle tries to help him. The show kept on running, proving a massive success for ITV, and they understandably didn't want to let a hit show go. It continued as it started. CI5 would investigate the deaths of important figures, stop international and domestic terrorism and generally keep the streets of London free of problems with stories sometimes inspired by real events. Slush Fund sees CI5 protect a reporter who has discovered that a new fighter jet has serious problems, apparently based on the real-life incident with the Lockheed Starfighter. The Gun is a daft episode with some risible acting from the guest cast and some really stupid plotting. Weekend in the Country dusts off the old gets-into-trouble-whilst-on-holiday plot that was done in every US cop show ever made. Cry Wolf is a nice little tale that shows Bodie's more sensitive side and has a neat twist ending. It's only a beautiful picture is a wonderful little travelogue showing how much London has changed in 40 years as Bodie and Doyle wander around Soho, Marble Arch and Trafalgar Square. Major parts of the nation's capital are barely recognisable today. Arguably, the single best episode of the show's run, Season 4's Discovered in a Graveyard, starts out as a routine case, but takes a sudden first-act twist that sends it spiralling into surrealism. People talk without moving their lips, the lighting and camera angles are all more off-kilter than usual, and it's quite a classy production, proving all the critics wrong about how good the show could be if given the chance. It's not one you can show to a newbie, though, as it requires a good understanding of the characters and their relationships. Much to Martin Shaw's consternation, high ratings kept the professionals viable into the 80s, with further production blocks booked. The relationship between the two stars deteriorated further, with directors being told to keep Lewis and Martin apart, which meant episodes like You'll Be Alright and Kickback split the duo up for most of the action, which loses some of the appeal. Bodie and Doyle's snarky and humorous back and forths were frequently the high point of the show. Sadly, production was curtailed when Lewis Collins broke his leg in a parachuting accident, a delay that meant the fifth production block would consist of only five episodes instead of 13, before the contracts ran out. Martin Shaw couldn't be seen for dust. The option of continuing without Collins and Shaw and just having Cowley work with other members of CI5 was mooted, as Gordon Jackson knew a cushy job when he saw one, but the costly overruns on a show with as high a production value as this one meant that ITV decided it was too big a risk to spend that much money without securing Bodie and Doyle, and the series quietly came to an end. Despite main characters that are boneheaded and thick... Despite the violence and silliness, despite the sometimes rudimentary nature of the plots, maybe because of all these things, The Professionals is gloriously entertaining. It's action-packed, adrenaline fueled hard-nosed British brutality at its finest. It's so full of testosterone, women have been known to get pregnant just watching it. Bodie and Doyle are thugs, so thank God they're on the side of the angels. British dramas tend to be worthy and dull, all cut-glass accents and dinner sets and posh frocks. The professionals blew the bloody doors off and was a breath of fresh air in 1977. Such a massive surprise to find, therefore, that in 2020, it still is. The task of protecting Britain's national security in 77 fell into the hands of two
1: fearless young men. They fought fire with fire, with whatever means necessary. They were cool, they were handsome, and they drove a Ford Capri. The professionals were suave and sophisticated, but the nation was divided over them. Which one was better looking?
0: If you liked the professionals, you had to like one or the other. I was totally in love with Lewis Collins, a dark, swarthy-looking, hunky bloke, and he was so cool.
1: Right, credit card opened so many doors.
0: Oh, God, this is so embarrassing. Let's have a look in the sack of mail, should we? Write me, film me, adapt me, edit me, Batman Forever is from Luke Giaconetti. And it, Luke. Hey, man, wanted to write in with a couple of thoughts about your episode covering Batman Forever. Batman Forever was released here in the States the day I turned 15, and I saw it the day after with my family. I remember being quite excited for the film. I'd enjoyed seeing both Batman and Batman Returns in the theatre, and this new movie had my favourite Bat-Baddy of childhood, The Riddler, from watching reruns of Batman 66 on Channel 11, WPIX, like many New Yorkers my age, and my favourite Batman Rogue from Teenager Don. Two-Face, owing entirely to his depiction in Batman, the animated series voiced by Richard Moll. Sitting in the theatre, watching it unspool, I remember having a lot of mixed feelings. Two-Face was not the Two-Face for which I was hoping. There are glimpses of him in here, and I honestly like the pop-art 60s via 90s costume, but overall the wild and manic portrayal was a far departure. And Jim Curry's over-the-top performance goes a bit too far, unsurprising given his star status at the time. But at the same time, I find myself swept away by the spectacle and craziness of the entire thing. I liked Kilmer, a turn from the quirky Keaton, and a much more physically imposing figure. I was never much of a Robin fan, but O'Donnell worked for me, reminding me of the older animated series Robin. Even Curry and Jones, who reportedly strongly disliked and clashed repeatedly with Curry on set, are charming, if one accepts their approaches. Kidman, well, I was a red-blooded 15-year-old boy, and let's leave it at that, yeah? (laughs) There is no denying that that, uh, Nicole Kidman is gorgeous in that film. You know? I'll be in my bunk. I readily admit that my origin with the film helps me to mentally plaster over the cracks. I had fun in that first viewing in that darkened theatre and I still had fun watching it on video and HBO. And I did the last time I watched it, probably about seven years ago. Was part of this because at 15 I wanted to like it? I'm sure that has a role as well, given the extremely troubled production that the released film holds together as well as it does is something, yeah, yes, Justice League doesn't, does it? Of course, I would love to see the quote-unquote original version with the flashback repressed memory plot completely restored. This bit of psychology would have helped the film tremendously, and I think these moody and morose scenes would have been a great contrast with the intentionally girdish world of Gotham City. Certainly due for a rewatch, and certainly still better than the abysmal Batman and Robin, a disaster on all levels as far as I'm concerned. Batman and Robin, if I may interject for a second, is the only time I have ever been embarrassed to be a comics reader. As an aside, the Batman Forever soundtrack was one which got a lot of play on my CD player in high school. Not the original score, but the soundtrack featuring Kiss from a Rose, "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, and so forth. Again, at 15, I was pretty much all in. A common choice is my background music whilst doing homework. I did not get the comics adaptation at the time, not sure why, to be honest, other than I didn't really buy Batman comics, but I do have it. One thing I found very amusing about the adaptation is that the comic opens and closes with a film crew, suggesting that even the world of comics, Batman Forever is still only a movie. Are you sure that's not the Batman and Robin adaptation? Because Denny O'Neill famously hates that film. And it wouldn't surprise me if he put that framework in there to uh, keep it out of continuity. Um, I don't. I'm sure it's Batman and Robin. I would have to go back and look. I don't think it's Batman Forever, but you know, doesn't matter either way, does it? Looking forward to whatever coming down the pipe here at the palace, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. Yes, all valid reasons for liking the film, and uh, I believe I've said many, many times before. I don't go to the cinema to not enjoy a film. And I came out of the cinema having enjoyed Batman Forever Immensely. I do remember that distinctly. And there's a lot of films like that. I enjoy them in the cinema, and it's only on repeated view, and You're like, maybe I should have only watched this once. By contrast, films I find boring in the cinema, which are very few, tend to be even more boring when I watch them at home. Dark Knight Rises. <clears throat> Uh, Our next email, forevermore, or more forever, is Chris Franklin. It's old home week this week. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. Great episode on Batman Forever. You know, I like that film way more than I should, which seems to be a common thread, Chris. I honestly can't explain why, which, again, seems to be a common thread. I think maybe because it came out during my carefree college days when life was pretty damn fine and uncomplicated. Maybe it's because, despite Kilmer being somewhat disengaged as Batman and O'Donnell being far too old to be playing Robin, they managed to capture some of the spirits of those early 40s Batman and Robin comics, just as the first Burton film had captured the mysterioso feel of Batman's first year of publication. Or maybe it's just that the end scene run in front of the bat signal, cowl wobble and all, because at heart I'm just a big bat fanboy. But anyway, I still like this film. I was of course aware of deleted scenes from the film. The giant animatronic bat Rick Baker built got way more screen time in the video for Seal's Kiss from a Rose. But having not read the novel or the script, I was unaware of some of the additional missing scenes and structural changes to the film. So thanks for enlightening me. It is a bit surprising the director's cut has never surfaced. Batman Forever was a huge money-maker for Warners, and was well-received at the time, for the most part. But I think the critical and commercial backlash for Batman and Robin has radioactively affected this film. The Schumacher films are lumped together as a piece, and honestly, Batman and Robin is a less successful remake of Forever, so maybe that's not unfair. Still, I would like to see a more complete cut of the movie, but I can live without it. Forever. As for Stargirl, I do think you're right. Henry definitely should have told Yolanda about Sydney's machinations, and he certainly shouldn't have fallen in with her. But that was one of the show's few concessions to the tired CW formula of characters doing really stupid things just because they want to steer the plot in a certain direction. That doesn't excuse the character on screen, however. I kept hoping Henry would say something in the final moments together, but he never did. He's looking forward to more Stargirl and more Palace. Chris. Well, that is excellent. Thank you, Luke and Chris, for your provocative and intelligent emails. Next time... Oh, I always bugger that up, don't I? If you want to email me, that would have been a good segue. But, you know, professionalism and me, opposite continents. Uh, You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you have anything to say about this. Especially people who've never seen or heard of The Professionals. It's on Amazon Prime in the UK. I do not know if it's on Amazon Prime in America, or elsewhere in the world, but it is the network, cleaned up versions, and honestly, the shows never look better. If you were to catch one of the shows currently being run on ITV4, it looks like shit, and then you watch the ones that are streaming on Prime, and it looks cinematic. It looks really well shot, because location filming and all the stunt work and everything. So, check out The Professionals if you get the chance. Um... That'll be nice. Uh, Next time, I don't know. I am mulling a few ideas. We'll see what happens. I think it'll be a return to Spider-Man. Whatever happens. But we'll see which direction I go in. Okie dokie. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And it's all going to be okay. Eventually. Take care. Bye-bye.